You're listening to Fundraising Radio, a podcast about fundraising for early stage startups. The major rule that we follow here is no bullshit on this podcast. No music to relax you, no advertisements of our sponsors. We only talk about fundraising here and nothing else. So let's jump into the episode. And today's a guest speaker, we have Christopher Hussein, co-founder and CEO at RealKey. And today we will talk about Christopher's two previous exits and how those exits affected his approach to fundraising for RealKey. We'll talk about how he took a look at his previous fundraising experience for other companies that he sold, including Sindeo, and how that affected his current approach to fundraising. So Christopher, let's kick off by you giving us some background on yourself and on real key. Hey, I uh, really appreciate you having me here, Constantine. Um, so yeah, uh, obviously real key is a mortgage tech startup. So it kind of makes sense that I have a background in the industry. Um, give you a little background on that. I was the back-to-back top mortgage originator in the U.S., for two straight years. Um, also one of only a handful of people to have held a license to originate in each of the 50 states. Um, so kind of a unique background there. Uh, I was also national sales director for one of the largest mortgage branching companies in the US before the housing crisis. My last startup, Cindio, raised $50 million before being acquired by an, by an internal investor uh, and is now part of uh, Freedom Financial. Uh, this is my third startup. Uh, with RealKey, I've got two prior exits behind me, including Cindio. Um, basically, what RealKey is, is we're uh, reimagining how you get a mortgage by automating the documentation, collection, review, and the communication amongst all the different parties. So basically, after a lender and a consumer, a typical person listening to this, agree to work together, uh, we have the lender export their loan application data to our system, to RealKey. And RealKey's algorithms automatically figure out what documentation to obtain, who it needs to come from. Uh, we invite them in. Uh, we also get who needs access to those doc- documents, invite them in as well so that they can chat and communicate within each documentation requirement room, so to speak. Uh, and then we facilitate getting the right items the first time through APIs, integrations, and OCR, basically triggering uh, any potential potential additional needs without waiting for underwriting uh, or doing that annoying back and forth dance that makes the process really so traumatizing that it gives everyone uh, potentially PTSD. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's really everybody listening who owns a house uh, within the last, within this year, because the rates are so low, either refinanced or purchased our house. So I think this is a really relatable topic, but yeah, what we do then is we take all those documents stack them so that uh, they have cover letters explaining what we did get, what we may not have gotten as far as not we, but the lender, um, since uh, those are our paying users, the lenders and brokers. Uh, And that way, when underwriting is looking at this, they can get through it in minutes instead of hours or days. Uh, This way, it's the most efficient, effortless, enjoyable way uh, that you can really get a loan. Uh, It's free to consumers. Again, our paying users are lenders and brokers. Uh, Yeah, that's basically real key and myself in a nutshell. I hope that helps. That's a really epic background. I feel like whenever you're opening a new company, the investors should be just like the the second day you open the company, the investors should be fighting on your front yard to get a chance to invest. So really great work here. Uh, Really, really nice. And let's start that story with your first company, Sindio. What was your major takeaway from that fundraising experience? 
Um, well, with Syndio, I was a little less involved in the fundraising uh, since I was a co-founder, but I was the COO. Um, I was the only founder with mortgage experience, and thus I was a crucial part of the investor meetings as basically the one with the vision. Uh, I did also leave the company mid through its life cycle uh, to focus on my parents' health and stability. Unfortunately, um, being a little transparent, my dad had his legs amputated. Uh, my mom had has cancer, and so I wanted to focus on them, get them stabilized. Um, so I'll be honest, I was a little less involved in later rounds uh, as well as the exit. Uh, but I did learn um, from what the investors' uh, conversations were that they what they really valued, uh, as, as well as also from board meetings too. Um, now, fundraising as the CEO is very different. Uh, with RealKey, I'm doing everything. Uh, with Cindio, Nick, the CEO, and my co-founder there, uh, he had some great connections that helped him with fundraising. Something, I'll be honest, I'm, I've been a little less fortunate with, with RealKey making <laughs> fundraising for us uh, substantially harder. Uh, thanks to my other co-founders at Cindio, uh, this company also, that company started with one and a half million dollars on day one from mutual nice. connection. I know, really nice, uh, really helped accelerate everything, but that was from uh, some mutual friends. In fact, one of the, uh, in Switzerland, one of those investors, uh, the two main partners uh, was Nick's best man uh, at his wedding. Um, so really already had a connection. <laughs> and the other co-founder, uh, Ori, uh, he had uh, actually gone to school with the other uh, main investor. Um, and what was interesting is that these guys in Switzerland, they had actually, they were starting the very first brokerage uh, mortgages uh, in Switzerland. Um, now, that was very helpful, again, to jumpstart the business, hit the ground running, though I'm going to be honest, they did give up a substantial amount of equity uh, for that investment. Uh, I would say somewhere around uh, two to three times as much as what we needed for our initial uh, first raise. Mm-hmm. My next question was, you know, what was the major problem in that fundraising pro process? And I think you just answered that question. But do you think there were any other major issues that you can see now, you know, looking back at that uh, experience? Yeah, I, I think that with Cindy, as you just mentioned, you know, uh, fundraising was uh, not much of an issue until maybe closer to the end. Um, you know, uh, the CEO, my co-founder, you know, he did a great job. Uh, especially, you know, he also had numerous great connections from day one, you know, a background with, you know, a prior, not prior notable exit, uh, numerous ties to McKinsey. These are kind of things that make life a lot simpler. Uh, the only problem, major problem I would say is that uh, with Cindio, it would wait a little longer than uh, I would typically say, uh, you know, startup should to fundraise. Now, this is typical Silicon Valley uh, mentality. Uh, but by doing that, you know, um, you end up, uh, yes, getting more traction, but it also uh, puts you on your heels and, you know, some investors may smell blood in the water. Uh, and, uh, and at the same time, this is kind of what ended up happening with them in their last round is that uh, they gave uh, exclusive rights to a private equity firm uh, that uh, ended up waiting until that last second uh, to invest and then pulled the uh, you know rug out from under them, so to speak, uh, which was bad for them. And I felt it was kind of shady that that private equity firm did that. But uh, I think that we could have had a much bigger exit had it not been for that situation. Right, yeah, I mean, that's the major benefit of working with, you know, professional VCs, at least they have this, you know, startup mentality. I think most VCs and 
general professional investors are really nice towards their portfolio companies, I would say. It's just, you know, uh, this standard. We would, we would hope so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, from what I saw, maybe I'm just way too early on in my career here. But from what I saw, it's the general attitude here. But let's talk about real key more. Uh, so based off what you learned from your previous fundraising experience, what have you done significantly different in terms of real, real key? Um, yes, I mean, I did learn a lot from Cindio, the good, the bad, you know, after I had left. Um, the biggest takeaways, take I think, that I've applied to real keywords would be conscientious of dilution and burn rate, of course. Um, you know, that's definitely a balance that a lot of startups I don't think ever find. Uh, I do feel like, uh, you know, with Cindio, we might have spent money faster than uh, obviously I've done with real key. Um, the money then lasts longer and uh, goes substantially further than uh, it might have gone with that uh, prior startup. Uh, the executive team there also always looked really great on paper, but there was a decent portion of them that I would say were not necessarily made for startups. And I think that uh, this happens very often. You know, you need to have that balance where definitely when an investor looks at uh, your team, they just look at the bullet points and go, wow, okay, yeah, that's the right guy. Yeah, wow, that's the right guy. Uh, but they also need to get their hands dirty and lead from the trenches. Um, and so that's something that we've made sure to do with Realkey is uh, we do have that special ops-esque team uh, that obviously looks great on paper, but at the same time, they're busting their butts late at night, actually doing the work um, that's needed wearing multiple hats. Um, now, again, as I mentioned, uh, like most Silicon Valley startups, uh, they would wait till the 11th hour to raise with the intention to show that traction and get the highest valuations. But as I mentioned, I also backfired um, in the last round that was meant to bring uh, Cindio to profitability. Um, now, what happened with the private equity firm was very difficult, but another lesson learned was what happened next. Uh, the company had plenty of money to continue running, uh, I would say, without the executive team. So it was more than enough for uh, the actual uh, team and staff to continue running the company. And instead of furloughing the executives, allowing more time to find the right investors, the company announced that they were ceasing operations, uh, which then reduced the valuation of the company and the subsequent exit. Uh, with RealKey, we've been uh, quite tight budgeted and careful with how we spend money. So each of our executives, again, as I mentioned, lead from the trenches in their designated roles. Uh, and I'll be honest, Rilke actually uh, ran out of money a couple of times. And rather than quitting, we furloughed the team. We're able to keep the core team in all those situations. Uh, and uh, that allowed us to then continue and rebuild uh, when we finally did get the fundraising we needed. Um, and so now that we're all doing great, at the same time, that also taught us uh, the importance of profitability, sustainability, um, and we've actually been profitable for nearly two years from uh, the launch of our original product. Uh, and uh, we are expecting to return again to profitability before the end of the year. You know, this, this is an key to access that uh, I think has been exacerbated by COVID uh, is this mentality in Silicon Valley is going away of, uh, you know, burning through money, burning through money. Uh, yes. Instead, I think that uh, remote cultures are more important. We've always had a remote culture before COVID made it cool. Um, and this not only keeps costs low, but it's that's what's allowed us to attract our amazing leaders from places we would have never considered looking if we had a physical office. 
it's kind of funny how uh, post-COVID, a lot of ingrained mentalities in Silicon Valley uh, that uh, we fought against and investors are now saying, oh, you guys did the right thing. Good job. <laughs> uh, so I think I think it's kind of cool how uh, a lot of learning experiences uh, have uh, come full circle and have put us in a great place where we're at right now. That's awesome. And I'm curious, you mentioned, you know, uh, you had this remote mentality and that's, I think that's great. I'm curious, what's the weirdest location where you found one of those, you know, core team members, one of those leaders? Uh, I think the most interesting one, uh, so we are all uh, in the U.S., but uh, a good example, my head of sales operations, strategic partnerships, Rob Reed, um, it, he was the head of business operations and strategic partnerships for ZipLogix, the largest real estate software platform in the U.S. Uh, a lot of great connections, uh, brings a lot of clout to our business, um, really, really amazing individual. Now, him being in Michigan, I would have not been looking out there and what's interesting is that if you look at our space michigan is actually very interestingly one of the core places for the mortgage industry i mean you've got united wholesale one, united wholesale i know what uh, one of the <laughs> united wholesale is the largest wholesale uh mortgage player they're there uh we're dealing with flagstar uh through an accelerator they're the fifth largest bank uh, mortgages in the u.s uh quicken loans the largest uh mortgage lender is also there I, so it's got kind of interesting and if you just go across the water you've got guaranteed rate the largest uh mortgage brokerage uh you know national association of realtors has uh, their main, one of their main headquarters is in Chicago. So it's like, I don't want to move him. I, I like where he's at. It's perfect. Uh, but again, I would have never thought to, uh, consider him, uh, if it wasn't for the remote culture and remote mentality. Right. That's Michigan probably is the place that I would never even consider for hiring someone for a startup world, <laughs> but you know, nice, nice move. Nice move. Sounds like it really is a good place for mortgage stuff. Uh, so nice work there. Uh, so going back to your fundraising process, I'm curious, uh, I'm hearing the same exact question from multiple different early stage founders. When is the point where I should actually go out and start fundraising? How did you do it in real key? So, when was that point when you were like, okay, now we're going out to talk to VCs, to those angel investors, and actually try to get checks in our bank accounts? Um, so for us, I mean, it, it was me running the business for basically the first year and a half, you know, putting everything together, uh, roadmap, business plans, uh, you know, pitch decks, things of that sort. Uh, I had to honestly start uh, by going to pitch competitions and completely <laughs> failing, falling on my face. I, I was stuttering. <laughs> I did not have any answers to the investors. There was times when I was like, uh, I don't feel comfortable saying that. These are all, you know, early stage uh, founders doing pitches. These are those early stage mistakes. And it was complete wreck my first few um, and very embarrassing. But then I... <laughs> chose to keep going to these and I learned from the question. So I'd have a question and I would figure out what the answer to it was and make sure I knew the answer the next time. And uh, you hone in the pitch and get better at it and have it come off more natural. We also chose to go through an incubator, uh, the Battery based in Berkeley. Um, and they're basically like 60 investor advisors, uh, mainly comprised of a lot of Sandhill Angels members. Well, they made the very first uh, investment uh, back in 2017. So basically we go through the incubator and eventually uh, your champion you're dealing with 
they may or they may not decide to invest. In our case, uh, our champion decided to invest uh, and give us our first valuation. Well, he brought in other investor advisors with him, so it became kind of a snowball effect, made the introduction to Sandhill Angels, pitched there, then that led to Band of Angels, then the Angel Syndication Network, and then many other angel groups. And so that really was a big part of our initial seed raise was angel groups. And so I would say anyone starting a company for this time should uh, swallow their ego and join in an incubator. Um, and if you can't raise from your incubator, being honest, or even get into one, I think that saves you a lot of trouble and you might want to quit <laughs> early and just be honest with yourself. Again, it's, I think that's a big problem with the startup ecosystem is that a lot of people have great ideas and want to start businesses, but let's be honest, not everybody should. Uh, or sometimes the idea is maybe the one that's flawed, but there's something going on there and it's hard for people to swallow that ego and get past that. Most definitely. Yeah. I think that's great advice. That's why, you know, frequently recommend people, you know, if you think of fundraising early on, my recommendation is go to the incubator. I know they are generally taking like two, 3% in the share, but you know, it's better to have 97% of something that works than hundred percent of something that is not going to get anywhere. So yeah, great advice here. And definitely, you know, take a look at those uh, incubator accelerators. It might give you great introductions. Um, so definitely consider that option. And let's go a little bit backwards, back to Sindio. Um, How was the exit like? You mentioned that you didn't really participate actively in it, but I'm just curious. I mean, you've seen the whole thing uh, unfolding. How did you first get in touch with the acquirer? Did you actually plan for it and reach out to them yourselves? Or did they actually email you saying like, hey, we want to buy your company? Uh, I mean, like you mentioned, I was not uh, heavily involved in it. The uh, end investor was one of our internal investors. So we didn't have to really uh, do a lot of searching there. Uh, they made the offer to us and uh, had we gotten the next round, had we continued running the business, had we followed the staff instead of, uh, you know, uh, closing the doors before the sale, obviously it could have been a much bigger exit in my opinion. Um, but it's not something I'm not happy with. We got, you know, uh, I think that in the end of the day, having an exit is better than the company failing uh, as a whole, to be quite honest. And that happens to me. Absolutely. Most. Absolutely. Even if the exit is not like super successful, the fact that you can even claim that you had an exit is just wonderful. Um, but let's talk about failing and tough times, not failing specifically, right? Let's talk about tough times. <laughs> Real key, you mentioned that you managed to go through those, you know, tough times when you didn't really have money, but you still managed to keep your core team. I'm curious, how did you manage to do this in terms of who did you decide to keep and how did you you know, how do you come to them with the news? You know, people, we can't really pay you now. And here's what we're going to do. So what did you offer them back? How do you incentivize them to stay, basically? Uh, I mean, let's be honest. It was not really easy to get where we are today. Um, not everybody uh, that when we went through those hard times was in a situation where they could stick with us through the rough patches. I'd say we fared pretty well by being transparent and uh, about the situation and being aligned with our visions and goals of the business uh, as a team. Uh, and you can only do that again by being open with everybody. Uh, when it comes to an early stage startup uh, like Realkey, you know, uh, that are, uh, and you have people getting involved in that stage, that's not your everyday people. A normal person is only looking at the short term and what can I get from the company for me? 
versus a startup team is looking at the long-term upside and their equity and maximizing what they can do uh, for the company rather than taking from the company. Uh, we don't have people trying to take frivolous trips, go out for meals so that they can maximize their points and their credit cards. You know, that kind of <laughs> that kind of cancerous mentality, you know, leave it to the larger corporations. Uh, when it comes to an early stage startup, it's all about the long term. It's all about team and us and family uh, rather than the individual. Right. Yeah, I'm, that's exactly what I was talking about when you, you know I was when I was comparing PE firm and VC firm. I think that's the difference in the mentality there. Uh, but let's talk about current situation. So right now you're actually trying to raise, and you're in the process of fundraising right now as well, right? Yes. And how is it going? How is the COVID affecting you? Did you start fundraising before the COVID hit, or like right when it hit? Uh, well, we started before it hit, um, and I mean, obviously COVID is a much bigger problem for earlier stage companies. I'd say later stage companies, there are still a lot of investments being made in portfolio companies. VCs are doubling down. Uh, in some cases, I think it's a little insane because there's companies that have no sense of profitability or an eye to exit. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we work, Uber have not really taught them lessons yet. But <laughs> Um, you know, earlier stage companies now, you definitely need to show uh, growth during COVID, uh, more revenue than before the pandemic. Uh, I mean, investors are having flashbacks of 2008 and they're hesitant to let their money go and uh, trying to hide in their bunkers and weather destroying. And you have to consider who your typical investors are. This is their retirement. This is something that they built over time. There's not very easy to let go of it. Um, we've been very fortunate to be in an industry that's actually seeing a major boom and exacerbated need for our product during COVID. I mean, lenders are overwhelmed. They're getting burnt out with the increased need for capital, reduced payments, you know, coupled with lower rates. Homes are worth more than they ever were before. I mean, uh, this has really overwhelmed a lot of lenders and they are uh, frozen in their tracks because of, for them as well, flashbacks to 2008 and even you know other times where they're hesitant to hire new staff. Uh, it takes ramp up time for them to, uh, you know, be able to learn the systems. And so you're dealing with a lot of uneducated, uh, you know, inexperienced individuals at most of these lenders that's extending turn times and burnout is definitely becoming a very real issue uh, in the mortgage industry. Um, so that's something where I think that's helped us. Uh, additionally, uh, through COVID uh, and also past experiences, uh, we identified a newly addressable market where we, as of we were sending selling mainly to mortgage lenders, brokers, banks, uh, we're mm -hmm. also looking at the loan servicers. That means after you get the loan, people who are taking your payments, dealing with people who need help. And if you can't get a refinance, uh, these are the people who help you out with getting forbearance agreements, deferrals, loan modifications, um, alternative financing. And so we're seeing that this is going to be a growing need for that uh, over the next six, 12 months. I mean, we're looking right now at a lot of people who are unemployed and they were getting help from the federal government. They're not even getting that anymore. Um, so this is just going to get worse and worse. And there's people who are renting to those individuals that still have a mortgage payment and now don't have rent income. Um, and it's just getting worse and worse. And so it, what's helpful about that, though, is that for us to reprioritize uh, the product to even uh, assist on those, um, you know, different programs, 
that also is helpful for us with investors where they see it as we're insulating the business from ebbs and flows in the market. Right. Nice. That's great. And sounds a little bit depressive, to be honest. <laughs> and it's getting more and more, it's getting worse and worse every day. I, I honestly hope it's going to end up pretty well because, uh, gosh, I don't want to go through 2008 in 2020. I'm too young for that stuff. Uh, please don't. But let's let's talk about how your strategy has changed in terms of even pitching. So before COVID versus post COVID, besides the fact that you are a new uh, you know, segment of people who you might be selling to, which is awesome, by the way, congrats. Uh, what has changed in your approach to investors? What has changed in your pitch? Um, I think that in our pitch, you know, we're more focused. It's a numbers game. Obviously, we tighten the belt, um, you know, for this to get worse before it gets better. Uh, and again, I think that those that can show they can uh, are ready to weather the pandemic and grow during it are more likely to get the capital needed. Um, I also do suggest focusing outside of Silicon Valley, uh, as many investors that used to stick to their immediate geography are more open to being geographically agnostic. Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's that's good advice. And let's talk about uh, your earlier raises versus current raises. So. Uh, with RealKey, as you mentioned earlier, you started by raising, you know, from multiple angel groups, which means you had multiple people on your cap base, uh, capital line. And now on our pre-interview call, you mentioned that you want to raise more money from like a lower, in, um, lower number of less investors, basically. You want to raise more money from less investors. Why is that? Why do you want to reduce the number of people on your cap table? Um, I think that it, it's uh, easier to manage the number of investors. Uh, we're also not dedicated to a single investor taking, um, you know, the last portion of our round. Uh, though it is a small enough amount that we see one investor most definitely being able to cover it. Uh, we took a lot of small checks in the past, uh, and I'm going to be honest, it, uh, it has scared off some investors uh, to see so many lines on the cap table. Mm -hmm. uh, so as we grow, you know, we're looking at less investors taking larger chunks. It's a natural evolution of uh any uh venture backed uh business right yeah it does make complete sense uh and let's talk more about those you know who are now starting their businesses who are just considering fundraising what's your advice to those early stage founders who are just thinking of starting to fundraise right now besides going to the accelerator because we talked yeah. about that already <laughs> um i'd say i'd still go back to the uh prior recommendations, definitely the uh, incubators are a necessity. I would say pitching to as many uh, pitch competitions as you can is also helpful to hone your pitch and to know what kind of questions are gonna be asked. It also helps your business. It's not just answering questions for investors. It's also uh, challenging and poking holes in uh, what currently exists to improve and strengthen everything at its core. Uh, I'd say beyond that, uh, again, it's a matter of it's at the end of the day, doing your research, finding the right investors, uh, people typically in your space that are going to get what you're doing, especially in the earlier stages when you have less traction, they're going to be the ones that get really excited, uh, you know, going to somebody and explaining to them about mortgage when they typically uh, only deal in medical or in energy is not always the best place to look. Uh, mm -hmm. 
I'd say people who are in finance, in fintech, that uh, have a background with real estate in finance, they're going to see what's happening and get it more. Uh, we've been fortunate, again, we're in an industry that during COVID, as I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, everybody's gotten a refinance, everybody's gotten a mortgage, and 99% of their transactions are traumatizing and horrible. And <laughs> they they tell me that, you know, and I've not heard anybody, very few people have said I've taken less than 40 days to close. And I'm just looking at them like, oh my gosh, rubbing my temples, that that would drive me nuts. Uh, and I've even had a lot of our users who in many cases are brokers and they rely on the lenders to process their loans. And they're just like, yeah, I'm waiting week, two weeks just to hear back from an underwriter oh, wow. I submitted. And I can't imagine how frustrating that is to not have uh, that power in your hands. And that's where our system, we're like, okay, well, we can automate that so that you get that underwriter feedback automatically and you don't have to wait for it. So that we're, we're again, we're very fortunate to be where we're at. Right. Yeah. Awesome times for you guys. Congrats and hope, you know, to, to, to interview in a few years about the exit with the real key. Uh, but here we're moving on to the last question today, uh, which is a call to action. So what's the one thing that you would like the listener to do as soon as the episode is over? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, if there are any uh, potential investors interested, you know, give us a call or email me personally. Uh, very simple email, Christopher at realkey.com. Um, and also any listener that owns a home, refinance or purchase, which is everybody, um, <laughs> make a quick intro, literally just, hey, you lender, meet Realkey. Um, and you can use my email or our uh, head of sales operations, Rob at Realkey. Um, and we're also looking for channel partners, even if it's not a lender, it could be somebody in title, escrow, insurance, you know, uh, attorneys, if you're in one of those uh, states that uses attorneys. Uh, any of these are potential channel partners for us uh, and free users of the product, and we can make their lives better too. Uh, so yeah. Awesome, awesome. Sounds great. I'll definitely leave links to your email in the description of this episode. I'll leave a link to RealKey as well. And my personal call to action would be uh, the Venture Studio where I work, Make It Studio. We're opening up office hours every, I believe, week or two weeks, where we'll help you out in terms of finding new uh, first customers, in terms of redefining your fundraising strategy, because, you know, I'll be there. <laughs> and just a lot of helpful stuff. So I'll leave the link to that one as well in the description of this episode. So my call to action, as usual, is go to the description of this episode. Tons and tons of helpful information await you there. And have a great day.